Hi, this is Louis Canio. Welcome to the Doctor and Dad podcast. This fast-paced weekly podcast delves into the latest scientific findings on how we can all live longer and better lives. I'm the dad, and my daughter, Nicole, is a family medicine doc who trained at the renowned Cleveland Clinic. We hope you enjoy this short, informative show, and please be sure to visit thedoctorandad.com. Uh, and by the way, the doctor is abbreviated in that. So it's T-H-E-D-R-A-N-D-D-A-D.com for the show notes um, and other resources to help you learn about extending your health span. Within the notes, you'll find links to a bunch of stuff we discussed. So be sure to check it out. And thanks for listening. Hi, doctor. Hi, dad. So we now have another kind of special episode. We're honored to have with us um, a, a special guest, uh, one Brandon Bartman, <laughs> MD. Our very first guest on um, our podcast. Actually, Hello. Actually, Is that right? Have actually, not true. Heard? What? <laughs> oh, no, no, sorry. No, no, no. no, no. We're That's the, right. We're That's the first right. ones. Well, can I be the first specialist guest even though nana and nono are the specialist <laughs> in many areas <laughs> yes you can be the first specialist guest for Excellent. sure you you just have a a very high bar because none or nono said like they were way up there in terms of the quality of that podcast i don't, I don't think we we've ever done a better one so well, here we go <laughs> buckle up not to put pressure on you but um, as 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 some of our listeners may know, Brandon is Nicole's husband. Yep, true, true, uh, guilty. Uh, so so we we should note that, and, and we should also note that um, he is an ophthalmologist um, and practicing in Omaha, Nebraska. So let's start out with maybe some background on you, Brandon. Um, just kind of curious did you like uh, come out of the womb knowing that you were going to be an ophthalmologist or wh when when was it that you no I, I i didn't i thought i was going to be a teacher uh until about halfway through college um i decided to go to medical school because i liked science and i liked how the brain worked i was interested in neuroscience and neurotransmission and all these chemicals that guide who we are and how we feel anyway uh, I didn't end up becoming a neurosurgeon, but I did end up going to medical school and falling in love with the eye. Um, I chose ophthalmology because, number one, I'm kind of a germaphobe. I, I don't love the environment of the hospital like Nicole does. I, uh, I, I much prefer a quality of life improving specialty rather than a quantity of life improving specialty. And I found partway through medical school when I visited Ghana um, to do some outreach eye care that in ophthalmology, this, this cannot be argued, we can do the greatest good for the greatest number of people. The impact is, is incredible, the number of people we can help in, in ophthalmology. That's subjective, but... Well, I don't know about that. And that's a bold statement. It is. It, it but it I'm is in no position bold. to argue with you. <laughs> that's, that's why I've selected here as my <laughs> venue to share with the world that I... I but that's my passion. I, I love restoring sight because I've seen what it looks like when people don't have access to eye care and, and how... Um, how damaging it is to not only that person, but their family and the community. Um, 
you know, when somebody is blind, particularly needlessly blind from something like cataract that can be repaired in a five minute surgery. Interesting. So, so um, actually take us a little deeper into that Ghana experience. So Ghana is, is where I should know this. I know that's my okay. Geography pretty good. Ghana is in West Africa, uh, very close to Nigeria. So uh, similar sub-Saharan West African uh, country, uh, wonderful country, um, beautiful uh, landscape. There's um, uh, there's beaches. There are plenty of uh, wild animals. There's jungle. There's desert. There's all kinds of stuff. But there's also a lot of blindness. Um, there's there's one ophthalmologist there for you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, that's the ratio, not just exactly one ophthalmologist, but you get the point. Mm-hmm. Um, people don't have access to eye surgery. And so that's why I went over there with an organization called Unite for Sight, uh, where we went in, we taught people, um, uh, eye care providers, uh, uh, how to improve efficiencies, access to care, um, and, uh, and hopefully develop a sustainable model for them in the future where they don't need outsiders coming in. So, so it's interesting. It sounds like you hadn't, hadn't chosen ophthalmology as your profession before you went to Ghana with, uh, on this kind of eye clinic kind of expedition. That's right. I, I, I really hadn't. I had an interest, um, but I had no idea that this was something that I was going to you know, devote the rest of my life to at that point. What year yeah. did you go to Ghana? That was 2010. What year was that? Second year? First year. First year of med school? Yeah, between first and second year. Yep. Because it seemed like shortly after that, you were pretty, pretty honed in on ophthalmology. Yeah, it didn't take long. Maybe uh, somewhere on the, somewhere over the Atlantic Ocean is where I figured it out on my way back. <laughs> so, yeah, I was. I was you were the only one in our class too go into ophthalmology? Nope. My, myself oh, yeah. and my college yeah. friend, Jenna Kesty, now Jenna Benson is also so, an ophthalmologist. So this is strange. We went to medical school together at Wake Forest, which Wake Forest isn't strange for me because I was living in North Carolina at the time, but Brandon was um, living in Minnesota at the time mm-hmm. and he, Wake Forest is far away and quite small. Um, but he, his friend, you can tell the story. Jenna. Yeah. So Jenna was a year ahead of me in college. We did research in a, uh, kind of a neuroscience laboratory, um, together as undergraduates. She, she graduated a year before, got into Wake Forest and deferred her, um, her acceptance, uh, to do some youth ministry work. Um, anyway, encouraged me to apply to Wake Forest. So I applied to nine schools. One of them was Wake Forest. I got interviewed at three schools. One of them was Wake Forest. I got waitlisted at three schools. One of them was Wake Forest. And I got in off the waitlist to one school, and it was Wake Forest. So uh, ironically, Jen and I uh, went to medical school and graduated together as well. And she also went into ophthalmology. Correct. We were the only two to go into ophthalmology from our whole class of 150. Yeah. No, 120. 120. Yeah. That is, I didn't, I actually hadn't heard that backstory. That is uh, interesting and, and, you know, very serendipitous and very just kind of, it's funny how, how life unfolds sometimes when you look back on it. I agree. Um, so you guys obviously met in high school, then, um, it, then, uh, Brandon, you went to Cleveland Clinic for residency and, and Nicole 
went someplace else uh, because she was going to uh, go the surgery route, decided against that ultimately, and, and ended, ended back up at Cleveland Clinic. So just give us a, an experience, a little kind of snapshot of that Cleveland Clinic uh, residency. Obviously, you know, most listeners would know about the, the renowned, so to speak, Cleveland Clinic. So um, first, I'll just correct you. We did not meet in high school. I think you misspoke. We met in oh, medical school. In medical school. If I, said, school. if I said high school, yeah. uh, that was definitely a slip. The listeners <laughs> might have realized that they heard Brandon say that he fell in love with the eye in medical school, not his wife. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I didn't fall in love with my wife, wife until, I don't know. Way after. <laughs> just kidding. Um, so, so. Yeah, the Cleveland Clinic's residency program, the, their eye institute's called the Cole Eye Institute, phenomenal place for uh, tertiary care. They get some of the strangest of the strange things. Um, you know, in medicine, we talk about horses and zebras when you hear hoof prints. We, uh, uh, we saw a lot of zebras um, at Cleveland Clinic, and, and for that, I'm very grateful. Uh, it's less applicable now that, you know, I'm in private practice in a, in the community. I'm not seeing that stuff as often, but I still think about it. Uh, I still think about those things. They, they come to mind when I see something that doesn't quite add up. So anyway, it was a great program, very rigorous, um, academic, uh, and research heavy, um, which, you know, uh, lent itself well to my interest in, in, uh, in, uh, basic science and clinical research and, and, um, you know, the rest is history, but, um, that program's three years long, uh, and afterwards, you get to go out and be an ophthalmologist and, and do uh, eye medicine and surgery if you want. I chose to do an extra year in advanced anterior segment surgery. Um, so I'll just very briefly explain yes, what that means. Going to ophthalmology residency is not specific enough. Going to residency on just, you know, one single part of the entire body. Two single parts. Well, but they act the same way. Um, I'm more of a right eye specialist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> didn't Those three, three years of just the eyeball was not enough. If you're in ophthalmology, most people, most people have go on the fellowship. No, no, probably 20%. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, still we weren't, we weren't quite done learning about the eye needed to be better and, and <laughs> further specialized. So I specialize in the front of the eye, <laughs> which I find absolutely <laughs> absurd <laughs> well actually if you, if you want to get real specific i am i'm a cornea specialist which is only 500 microns okay in some Good. situations so, so five layers that. five layers of the eye four yeah. years of college we'll just sum it up 13 four years, years of medical school three years one year, one, of internship. one year of internship three years of ophthalmology residency one year of fellowship for, well, we ran out of fingers there. So. Yeah. For five microns? <laughs> no, no, 500. Five, oh, sorry, 500 <laughs> Don't microns. Don't sell me short. <laughs> of, the, uh, of the human body. Now, yes, uh, it, it's true. <laughs> That's an oversimplification. Uh, anterior segment surgery basically involves four different kind of subspecialties. You may recognize, listeners may recognize some of these things. Cataract being the most common of them. I do a lot of cataract surgery. Um, glaucoma. Uh, another uh, potentially blinding disease. I do uh, a lot of glaucoma surgery. Also do corneal transplants. Yes, you can transplant part of the eye. No, you cannot transplant the whole eye. Um, 
but I, I specialize in that. And then um, refractive surgery. And for those of you that don't know, refractive surgery just essentially means surgery with a desired visual outcome. So that could be either cataract surgery with intention on not having to wear glasses afterwards or LASIK. So we can actually reshape the cornea with a laser. We call it LASIK. Uh, and, uh, and I do a lot of that as well. And I think it's interesting that you go from uh, doing your residency at the renowned Cleveland Clinic uh, and you do your fellowship uh, in the, I won't say the middle of nowhere, but uh, in the middle of the country. Try. Go ahead. So, go ahead no, to say it. it Sioux Falls. Yeah, we were in the middle of nowhere. I Sioux, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Uh, but that's, I think that's a, a bit of an interesting story as to why you chose uh, the, the place ultimately that you, that you work for now. Yeah. So um, I didn't really know about what is what is Vance Thompson vision, um, uh, a, a small, relatively small eye clinic and, and surgery center in South Dakota. Um, I didn't know about that when I went to residency. I found out about it maybe halfway through residency. I fell in love with it um, shortly thereafter, learning that um, there were a couple of Midwestern guys not unlike myself, uh, in the Midwest doing some of the most advanced eye surgery and research in eye surgery in the world. Uh, and, and that got me excited and I had to know more. And it just so happens that, uh, they also, um, really, really emphasize, uh, not only patient experience, but also employee experience. I found that when I visited, this was a place that, um, people, loved. People loved to, to come to work because uh, it was a fun environment. It was relaxed, unlike the uh, very um, uh, sometimes, and, and this is hopefully isn't too derogatory, but sometimes cold and sterile environment of the uh, Cleveland Clinic and, and uh, medical care in general. I, I felt like there was something different about the place uh, that made me want to um, commit to it and, uh, and be just like that. So that's why I chose it for fellowship and ultimately why I decided to uh, open my own center uh, yeah, under the, the same brand as Vance Thompson Vision. Yeah, that's that's it's it's really cool. And and we don't probably have time to get into some of the research that you um, were exposed to there or, or what have you. But um, um, but I, I think that, um, you know, obviously the, uh, it, it was, it's been a great fit for yeah. you. Absolutely. So, uh, so let's let's talk a little bit uh, about how the eye works, and and I'll I'll you know kind of give us give us kind of a uh, a fifty thousand foot level view, and then we'll dive into the weeds as 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 much as we think it it, it makes sense for the listener. Yeah, um, the the eye is um, uh, seemingly simple, uh, but actually quite complex. I'll try to simplify it without oversimplification. Uh, it's a camera. The eye is, is, a, is a camera. The purpose uh, uh, and sole function of the eye is to transmit uh, light energy um, from the outside world into a signal that our brains can interpret. Um, much like a camera, there's a lens inside the eye, and that lens serves to focus light, um, basically take in, uh, uh, incoming light rays, bend them, in a way that they all meet together at the, the back of the, the eye where there's a film, just like in a camera. And the film in our case is called a, a retina. And what happens there is one of the most amazing things that I don't know that I have 
enough time because what we only have three hours together yeah. uh, <laughs> i'm not sure i have enough time to explain how cool this is anyway light passes through the retina uh in uh, to the back of the eye the very back where there are there are things called the photoreceptors that actually react when light hits them and transduce the light energy into chemi- chemical signal that that then flows along the optic nerve into the into the brain and that's how we get vision right um and that's that's in most basic terms if we re- really wanted to get uh geeky about this uh that Wait, we haven't already what so so the brain does so uh, so much interesting stuff to kind of combine all of this, uh, all of these signals into a unified image, right? And and that's what we call vision. Uh, and because we've got simultaneously, uh, most of us, if we're lucky, simultaneous inputs from two different eyes, but we don't see it that way. We see it as one unified principle, but that, by the way, is uh, synced up to... Uh, the audio cues, which is uh, coming in from the the auditory system, it's it's really quite an amazing thing. If you if you want to get deep on it, Google the binding principle. That's what happens in the brain when all of these signals get uh, unified into one experience. So anyway, that's that's how the eye works. And when like I remember in residency, again I did family medicine residency and Brandon's an ophthalmology residency. Um, so when someone has a problem with their vision. Um, that problem can be because of the the eye itself or behind the eye. So when they say behind the eye, um, they're referring to the brain. So you won't catch an ophthalmologist in the hospital um, to save your life. They avoid that place like the plague. And we run pretty quickly if spotted. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't even know what it would take to get an ophthalmologist in the hospital. Like what I would have to tell them was going on to get them to actually come in to do a consult. It's always like. Mm. The eye fell out usually works. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's almost nothing you can say to them that would make them say, oh, I'm going to drop what I'm doing here and come in and see that patient in the hospital. They're going to say, can you. uh stabilize them and once they're kind of cleaned up patent packaged packaged up send them to my clinic great great so hang on a second hang on so whenever we would see a patient who would have vision problems um they would always be like have you talked to neuro have you talked to neurology what neuro say they like would turf it off to the neurologist first because they want to make sure because they're in the hospital uh well not always they do their own clinic work listen listen I, I expect ample time for defense Rebuttal. of myself and my fellow ophthalmologists here. Here, here's the scoop. Like I said, it's a great segue. The the one of the re- other reasons that I went into ophthalmology is because of the the unique tools and really, let's be honest, toys that we have to um, diagnose and treat people. And and a lot of that stuff. Um, can't they can't. Them. We can't put it in a briefcase. We it doesn't fold up like a stethoscope. Uh, these are these are uh, microscopes. Uh, you know, oftentimes mounted to the wall or <laughs> the floor. A- anyway, it, to get a really good visual exam, you need to do it in a in a in a um, a very very um, well uh, thought out environment. Um, we do go to. The, I have been to the hospital. I've seen patients in a <laughs> hospital room with eye problems. I don't enjoy it, uh, but, but I will do it um, if need be. Anyway, that's the reason. It's not that we're selfish or lazy. 
we're just drinking coffee on the weekends. <laughs> it's it's re- it's really that eye care is best done in the our clinical setting when a patient's me- other medical problems have stabilized. So you're saying that there aren't any emergencies. You're not saving a, a life. Well, actually, no, no, no. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna let you go there. Um, there are uh, there have been a number of people. Um, that I have seen, um, along with my colleagues in training, that could have uh, experienced significant morbidity, if not mortality, if it were not for for us. There are um, certain infections. Most of them have to do with the lining around the eye. Um, The orbit is where the eye sits. So you get your little camera can shoot around and look look all over because it can move within the orbit, which is uh, also known as the eye socket. If there's an infection of the eye socket, uh, that can oftentimes be difficult to diagnose. And if missed, that infection can travel backwards into the brain. So, um, okay, okay. so there are that sounds fact, yeah, gruesome. There are in fact situations where you can have bacteria or worse fungus that can get into the orbit. No, no bueno. Uh, but uh, but yeah, those are those are examples of true ophthalmic emergencies. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I just want to go back for a second to, to you know, the, this whole notion of how the eye creates our vision. And, and just, you know, for, for me, when you, as you were going through that, that, that explanation, Brandon, um, it just makes me marvel at, at all the evolutionary steps that had to occur for, for sight mm-hmm. to, to have developed. Because, you know, essentially evolution is a trial and error type of thing. So you're going to trial and error, Jeez, you know, how many billions upon trillions of different things to come together to, to create what is now human sight. Is, and is usually amazing. it all goes well, perfectly. I mean, most people don't have a big problem with their vision in their lifetime. That, that is one thing that, you know, in general, um, we're all fortunate for um, there are a, a, a a very wide array of, of medical conditions, both systemic um, and uh, within the eye itself that can cause uh, vision trouble. Um, uh, but a lot of those things are, like Nicole had, had referenced, uh, relatively uncommon in, in terms of the grand... Um, uh, sorry, our son just fell asleep and we got the message. <laughs> Wonderful. He's been awake for like two hours in his crib. So. <laughs> Better late than never. So let's talk about some of those things that can go wrong, and then um, and then some of the some of the ways that we can um, you know kind of protect our eyes and 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 take good care of our eyes. So I would actually flip that. Let's first, because the listeners here, um, we try to keep this pretty pertinent to um, general health and st- like high yield stuff. Um, so we don't want to get kind of. Right. Um, drag down too much into the the super depths of the world of ophthalmology. Why um, not? Because, like I <laughs> like we said before, one time um, and two um, high yield. So to first, um, I guess if you can talk a little bit about how anybody, the average person, can protect their eyes and keep their eyes healthy when they don't have you know, any known problems, because I can come up with a couple in my head of things that I have learned that I didn't know through medical school and residency that you have um, informed me about, of things that we shouldn't be doing or should be doing. Do tell. 
staring at the sun. Okay. <laughs> That's what you learned in medical school? No, didn't. Oh. I mean, I pray. I know Wait. staring at the sun is bad. Fine. But I didn't realize that like it was this big of a problem. And I, I guess it's not like it's part of what we learn in our um, pediatric well child checks to like make sure the kids don't stare at the sun because some people, some kids, how do you know? They could be staring at the sun and we're not taught to tell them how dangerous that is. But then again, I feel like giving them that idea might be. Cause them to do so. What, them, but, yeah. and, and maybe the broader issue there is just, let's say UV, UV, um, damage to, to eyes or, or, well, I guess I would, you know, I'm not a big sunglass wearer. Um, I don't really, I don't know. They just bug me. So I don't wear them that often, but Brandon will always be like, put your sunglasses on, put your sunglasses on. So that's just general UV light, but I'm talking like staring at the sun. So yeah, we're, t- we're talking about two different things. Yes. I think the general principle of, Hey, wearing UV protection when you're going to be outside for a prolonged period of time, like, I don't know, on the golf course, etc. cetera. Uh, it's a really good idea. You want to be able to protect your eyes from the sun. Um, you know, there are conditions um, that happen uh, uh, high up in the mountains of the Himalayas uh, because of the UV exposure up there. They can actually develop these um, these uh, disorders of the front of their eye because of the, the UV light. Uh, another, um, you know, uh, uh, similarity here is something we call welder's keratitis. Welding can produce arc of, of light that can actually burn the corneas. Um, and that's why they wear those uh, face shields, not just for, for uh, you know, physical protection, but also protection from the light. So if you're someone who is outside a lot doing landscaping or you're a golfer or whatever, and you generally don't wear sunglasses, what is the potential long-term harm in that? Good, good question. Um, unlike, the, um, unlike the skin, um, the, the damage from UV light to the eye is not most commonly uh, an eye cancer, although it is um, a thing to have cancer of the eye, both the eyelid and inside the eye. You can actually have melanoma inside the eye. We think that's less uh, related to UV exposure. Um, but some of the conditions that uh, are the result of chronic UV and environmental exposure are things like cataract, right? So we think that um, if you live long enough, everybody will develop a cataract. Those who develop cataracts at earlier ages sometimes are more exposed to UV light. Um, other times uh, have medical conditions or genetics that predispose them to early cataracts. Um, but another thing is a, a, one of the most interesting things, and I think underrated things in, in our field, is a, is a condition called pterygium. Have you guys heard that term before? Yes, but probably only. I have not. You. <laughs> okay, so look it up if uh, if you want to see a picture of what I'm talking about. I'm going to describe it to you. It is essentially like the lining on the side of the eye decides to reach up and grow over the cornea, like it's trying to cover your eye. I kid you not, it will look just like that. It looks like a wing. That's why that, why it's called a pterygium, spelled like a pterodactyl with a p. Anyway. Um, pterygium is caused by chronic UV, uh, irritation, uh, and dust and, and, uh, wind irritation of the lining of the eye. Yep. So that's another thing that can happen, a degeneration on the outside of the eye that can lead to potentially blinding condition like pterygium, uh, if not cognizant of the UV exposure of your eyes. Okay. So then just general <clears throat> eye health, 
um, would be blocking the UV rays. Yes. Tell me just quickly about directly staring at the sun. Okay. Bad idea. (laughs) (laughs) I don't do it. I'm just asking. So here's, here's the problem with staring at the sun. Uh, the risk is not to your corneas, right? Um, you wouldn't necessarily uh, burn your corneas, but what you can burn is your retina, right? Your retina, again, is that film on the back of the eye where it's transducing energy from light to your brain. What happens when you focus all of the light at, at, at one spot, right? What happens, let's use a magnifying glass you start in sun. Fire. Okay, so you use a magnifying glass Your eye sun. is going to start on, no. it's catch on fire. No. I think you're missing the point. What I'm saying is you hold that magnifying glass outside at a certain level above the ground, you're going to focus all of that light energy to one spot, right? That light energy, sometimes we forget, is energy, right? Mm-hmm. Those are actual photons that, that can, uh, if in high enough quantities, create a problem. And so what happens in the eye is all of that light gets focused onto one spot. And unfortunately, most of the time, that's the center of the vision. And these people that are uh, sun gazers, and you can actually burn a hole in the in the Call retina. Them sun gazers? Yeah. Is that a medical term? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> I think it's a derogatory term to <laughs> ophthalmologists. <laughs> Is it? I don't know. I'll have to look it up. I think I call. I think I call them sun gazers. Yeah. yeah. Well, and and so that. And, wow. and am I correct, uh, Brandon, in saying that it's it, that in an eclipse it's worse because you don't have as much brightness, so you're um, iris or uh, I'm that. Is it the iris that opens and closes? Correct. Yep. Your iris is more open, allowing more of that energy in. Yeah. Doing more, more or less. Yes. So I just don't think there's enough um, general knowledge about that with everyone who's so excited to watch a sunrise or a sunset. Now, <laughs> are you taking a shot at me? No. no. Um, I do enjoy myself a sunrise and a sunset. Anyways, um, here's the difference. When the sun, when the, you can safely look at the sun when it is setting on the horizon or, or rising. Most of the time, don't look right at it. But you know how it's, it's also a slightly different color? Mm-hmm. The reason why that is, is that the light is passing tangential into the, through the atmosphere. And it's actually having to pass through more atmosphere, which causes light scattering. And some of that energy is then dissipated. In the in the way that the 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 light travels to get to your eyeballs, so um, so you can watch a sunrise or a sunset. You don't want to look up at the noon sun. Okay, <laughs> not okay. a good idea. Okay, so wear sunglasses. Don't stare at the sun. So far, now this is another one that I mean I knew it wasn't great, and I definitely realized that it wasn't a good habit um, after I got LASIK in residency because. They caution so much about not rubbing your eyes after. Um, But I don't think the general population realizes how much they could be damaging their eyes by rubbing them. Um, And some people rub their eyes a lot. So, yes. Um, Let me clarify, because I don't want all of your listeners to panic the next time they feel like they have an eyelash in their eye. You, you can touch your eyes. It is okay. It's generally not good hygiene to touch the eyes unless you've washed your hands. Um, but you can touch your eyes. When we're talking about... But I mean rubbing like over your eyelid. Right. It, here's where I'll, I'll draw an important distinction. 
Um, what is okay is uh, sometimes people say, well, I've got allergies and it itches on, in the corner uh, near my nose. Can I rub there? Yes. Uh, what about uh, on the outside as long as I'm, you know, on the eyelid? In general, my, my rule of thumb is if you're, if you're the pad of your finger uh, is on bone, no problem. You can um, you can rub your eye until the skin falls off if you want. Because that's not his problem. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a dermatologist thing. Uh, the, but if if you have your eye closed and you're rubbing over the cornea, if you can feel your eyeball underneath your hand, uh, you should not be rubbing your eye. Here's why. Okay, it's important. You can't. We just can't tell you not to do it and not tell you why, because then you'll just be curious. You don't. You don't. Um, you don't realize it but when you're rubbing your eye across the cornea what you're doing is creating stress on the tissue okay repeated stress on on a, a tissue is um like like that old basketball in the school gym okay we've all seen it you know you might have to think back ways there lou but you've probably been to a gym that's got a basketball uh, floating around there with a little lump on the side right it's kind of misshapen you say what you know, this doesn't do but anybody any good. Why is this around? Well, what's happened there is that's that's an old basketball that has been bounced and bounced and bounced and bounced and bounced until at some point you weaken the structure of that basketball so that the pressure on the inside overcomes the strength of that wall of the basketball and you start to get a lump. OK, believe it or not, same thing can happen to your eye and it's called keratoconus. Um, basically, same thing happens. Your eye is the basketball. Your rubbing of the eye is the bouncing of the basketball. And what happens is your cornea, the very front of the eye, can actually bulge forward and create poor vision, continually progressive need for new glasses and contacts and prescriptions until um, eventually uh, sometimes these patients need corneal transplants. So that is why, in what a nutshell. Of, I mean, how much? Are these like people who kind of have like, like um, I, a tick, some kind of tick? Right? Yes. So, so casual rubbing of the eye in, um, you know, like I said, in a certain pattern where you're rubbing the corner of the eye, no problem, yeah. right? The people who develop keratoconus almost always have a certain way that they rub their eye, yeah, and they almost always are hesitant to admit it because yeah. they they do it almost like a, Nervous like yeah, yeah. like there's a like a a a drive inside them. And it's not an itch. You ask them, it's not itchy eyes. Um, it's, it's a, almost like they get a re sensation relief when they, mm -hmm. they press and they either rub with the palm of their hand, their knuckle, or with their fingers across the eye. Right. So I generally say, you know, if you're rubbing your eye with your palm or your knuckle, no matter where you're rubbing on the eye, it's not a good idea. Right. Those are the people that wind up with progressive keratoconus. Um, but yeah, in summary, I would say wisest to avoid rubbing the eye at all. If you need to, make sure you're touching the bone and not the eyeball. Okay. Gotcha. How about um, eye vitamins? Um, I was once told by an op, I think it was an ophthalmologist or an optometrist, that I should take eye vitamins as I get older. Yeah. So eye vitamins, um, they are real. Um, there's actually science behind it. Not just the carrots. Correct. Um, beta carotene used to be part of eye formulations, uh, eye vitamin formulations. It is no longer. 
because they found that in certain people, mm-hmm. smokers, mm-hmm. they were at an increased risk of developing cancer as a yeah. result of that. We actually have a podcast way back in the archives at the beginning where we talked about this. Um, we talked about supplements. I don't know if you remember, Dad. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And just to, we um, ended up highlighting a couple of missteps that we've taken, even in the well-researched medical community, let alone the, um, you know, the rest of the supplement world. And this was one of the missteps that um, we kind of highlighted. So, Here's the gist on the I vitamins. Um, to put it simply, I'll ask some questions. Should everyone take I vitamins? And the answer is no. Um, should everyone take I vitamins as they get older, as you say, Lou? Um, the answer is no. Uh, and here's why. Um, I vitamins are designed to prevent progression of age-related macular degeneration. And that's it. That that is the one condition they're designed to prevent the progression of. They're not designed or have been shown to prevent the onset of it. Um, but they have been shown in in very in depth and large clinical trials to reduce your risk of vision loss from the condition if you already have it. So if your optometrist or ophthalmologist has recommended you be on these vitamins. I think it's likely that they have seen something in the back of your eye that might suggest you have early forms of macular degeneration. So there are some people with macular degeneration that, um, that progress to vision loss, and we can reduce that with the use of vitamins. Does that make sense? Yes. So uh, question, I guess it begs the question, because you're only going to find out if you've got those early signs of, of uh, age-related macular degeneration. If you, if you go for an eye exam, how often should people be going for an eye exam? Is that, is that an every year type of thing? or It, it is. It's largely age-dependent. Uh, um, you know, kids uh, can develop eye problems um, that, if undiagnosed, can lead to, you know, major trouble, not just in school, but development of the eye. Um, those kids uh, are often found by their primary care providers or pediatricians and, and thankfully sent to the eye doctor. The rules for them will, will be different. Um, but young, healthy adults, I usually say every couple of years. Um, and then once you get, uh, or depending on your other medical conditions, maybe in your 30s or 40s, you want to start getting an eye exam every year. The, the reason is, you know, as you stated, Lou, um, there are some things that if you can catch in an early state, meaning an asymptomatic state, you might be able to change the course of the condition um, by instituting a change like eye vitamins or uh, cessation of eye rubbing, right? So you can find those things on a routine exam and patients may not know that they have it. Like, so I'll call out now my younger brother, Dominic, who lives here in Omaha and he swindled Brandon into some LASIK surgery at some point. But when Brandon was doing his pre-op, you noticed that his corneas were really thin, right? Yeah. His corneas were thin. Um, and so we had to have a good talk about whether or not he rubs his eyes and what's safest in terms of procedures. So we actually performed a procedure called PRK instead of LASIK for that very reason. But he was, and he, 
said, yeah, I rub my eyes all the time. Mm -hmm. And he didn't know, he had no idea that what he was doing was bad. And I mean, he would even show us how he would rub his eyes. Yeah. And that's why he didn't get to have LASIK. (laughs) He didn't get to have LASIK, but he's only 25. Yeah. So if he hadn't looked at his eyes and called him out on that. Yeah. He could have had a deflated basketball for an eye. (laughs) Yeah. Back to your analogy. Very true. That's very true. So, so yeah, I think, um, you know, along the, the same lines, one of the, the most beautiful things about eye care is that um, a lot of times there can be medical conditions that you can diagnose by looking at the eye, right? And so one of the most common things that we think about are things like diabetes. Um, diabetes is a obviously a, a whole body condition and, and and really what it is, is it's a disease of small blood vessels. And some of the smallest in the body are, are inside the eye. And believe it or not, we can see them. That is what is really incredible Those about the eye. Those instruments that are we, mounted to yes, the floor. We can actually look at blood flowing in the eye through these blood vessels. Nowhere else in the body can you do that. And, and so um, what we can see is changes to the blood vessels um, that can lead to uh, blindness. But it, it's also an indicator that those same changes, if they're happening in the eye, they're probably happening in the feet and can lead to neuropathy. Or they're probably happening in the kidneys that can lead to kidney failure and all sorts of things that happen with un, untreated diabetes. So, so there's definitely good evidence to consider getting a good dilated eye exam every year um, just to make sure we're avoiding some of these things that can be prevented. And what's kind of interesting with that, with kids, as a primary care doctor, we have clear guidelines as to when to start screening um, vision in kids and when to look out for um, problems with their visual development and at what stage and what to do about it. Because that, like Brandon said, is really serious and can cause um you know, vision limiting results long-term. So that's kind of set in stone. We have then as people get older, clear task force recommendation guidelines that we follow for preventative care that happen at different stages. For example, it is established that we screen for depression, you know, and everyone, you know, starting at X age and this meant and, and do it once a year. Um, and we screen for high blood pressure and in certain people we screen for diabetes. And then once you hit a certain age, everyone gets screened for diabetes and colonoscopies get started at X, you know, age. And that's all just, that's all guideline based. And we can debate whether those are all good guidelines or not at different time, but there is not really any clear recommendation to say, you know, everybody 45 years and older should have a, um, a dilated eye exam every other year. Um, and that would be a very easy recommendation to implement. And like at a, someone's physical, I would ask them as I'm kind of like looking over everything, I'd say, do you see your eye doctor? And that's how I ask it. And it's either like, yeah, because I have glasses or contacts or something. Um, or no, I haven't seen an eye doctor in like 10 years. I have fine vision. My vision's fine. Um, and there's no clear recommendations for what to do and where people should go. 
So you don't have to go to an ophthalmologist to have that done. A hundred percent true. You can go to an optometrist and they're able to do a healthy, you know, screening exam and send you if needed. If you have diabetes, we send you for a yearly diabetic eye exam. Um, but I think there should probably be a little bit more focus on um, general well eye exams. Like you have a well annual wellness visit. They're probably not done as often as they should be. That's that's probably true. Um, and I know the American Academy of uh, Optometry um, believes that same thing as well. They've got a think about your eyes campaign mm-hmm. that you may have seen advertised once in a while. I think they had some commercials and, and, and whatnot. But I do think that that's something that's coming. Um, and and you, you touched on an important point that I think that's relevant to listeners. Um, there There is a difference between ophthalmologists and optometrists, um, but not in terms of being able to provide comprehensive eye exams, particularly routine eye exams. Optometrists go to um, uh, their medical school, which is an optometry school for four years, uh, focused just on the eye. And if you recall, my residency just on the eye was three years, and it's largely focused on eye surgery in in ophthalmology. Um, Now, uh, an ophthalmologist or an optometrist can perform a, a general routine eye exam, but my belief uh, is that uh, those type of exams uh, can be sometimes even better performed by optometry um, who do, uh, don't do do surgery. So all of their focus is on, on doing these eye exams and prescribing contacts and glasses. And, and, and that's, that's the direction we have to go in as a, as a society as well. We're, we're going to be uh, facing a shortage of of ophthalmologists and optometrists really in the coming years. And, and um, we're going to have to, you know, as ophthalmologists anyway, uh, plan on focusing more on surgical care and, and working with optometry to take care of the rest of the medical things, because um, that's really uh, how we are going to meet the demands of our aging population. So anyway, uh, public service announcement. Let's go see your optometrist. Optometrists well, can take I, care I, of the majority of things that you might be wondering about. Absolutely, and you've you've definitely prompted me to to think I need to get to to my eye exam because I don't recall the last time I had one. Um, now you you've looked at my eyes a bit when I when I visited, but um, that that I'm an ophthalmologist. On, remember that doesn't count. That doesn't count because you're you're just yes you're right, an amateur. He only cares about a surgery. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay. Well, this this has been an eye opening discussion. <laughs> Oh, wow. You've been waiting, uh, what, 40 minutes to say that? <laughs> I have. I have. I, I admit. I admit you got me guilty as charged. So <laughs> so thanks. And, but, you know, with that said, there's, a, there's, there's probably another half hour to 45 minutes of questions I, I have. So uh, do, can we can we reserve the right to, to bring you back, Brandon? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think as I mean, your people can talk to my people and arrange the. <laughs> the fee i think that you know we can work something okay well it'll it'll definitely be a mere fraction of what we paid you for this one so (laughs) (laughs) that sure is enticing (laughs) great but you guys have a great rest of your weekend and uh thanks for thanks for taking the time brandon we appreciate it it was fun and thanks doctor appreciate you (laughs) bye-bye thanks again for listening you can visit the doctorandad.com that's spelled T H E D R 
A-N-D-D-A-D.com for show notes to any of our podcasts, as well as other useful info on extending health span. Now the legal disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. And no doctor-patient relationship is formed. Use of this information in show notes is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not meant to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Listeners should not, should not disregard or delay taking medical advice or treatment for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their medical professional for any such conditions. We also want you to know that we take no funding from any product or service that may be mentioned on the Doctor and Dad podcast.